Hello, I'm James Chow. Welcome to this podcast, which this week comes to you from Harvard University. My guest today is Joseph Nye, Harvard University Distinguished Service Professor, and he has formerly served, amongst many other roles, as U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense and Chair of the National Intelligence Council. Professor Nye, thank you very much for having me here today in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And if you look outside this glorious window and terrace that you have to your left, what do you make of the world as it stands? Well, uh, it's a more difficult world uh, than it was, let's say, 10 years ago. But I am not a pessimist about the long-term future. I I think that uh, uh, things are somewhat chaotic, but when uh, people tell me this is the worst it's ever been, I say, you've forgotten the 1930s, you've forgotten the 1960s. This is not the worst it's ever been. And I expect uh, over time things may improve. If we look to the 1970s, the decade after, that was the beginning of the movement of a U.S.-China relationship in a modern sense. Well, it was if, if the 1970s uh, after uh, uh, the meeting between Nixon and Mao uh, was the start of a new relationship, uh, but it was also very much uh, uh, forwarded by Deng Xiaoping's policies and uh, the recognition, of course, uh, in uh, uh, 1979, uh, and there was a period of, of, of quite good relations, improving relations, uh, that went through the the 90s, and um, it really doesn't uh, turn sour again until uh, basically um, in a recent period. I, I think uh, since uh, uh, the Trump administration, things in the U.S.-China relationship have gotten uh, considerably worse. But I think it's important not to blame it just on Trump. There was already a, a bipartisan um, disillusion with Chinese policy uh, uh, before the 2016 election. That said, it was supposed to be a celebration of some sort at 40 years. We're only a decade off from half a century. Uh, how do you see the relationship evolving given all the new settings and complexities that you just described? Well, right now we're, of course, uh, involved in a trade war, and uh, that makes uh, things difficult, and we don't know how that will be resolved. Um, uh, There are really two types of issues. Uh, One is the bilateral trade balance, which President Trump often focuses on, uh, but that's not the real problem. The real problem is more related to uh, a coercive intellectual property transfer. Basically, the, the, there is there was a disillusion uh, in Washington, both among Republicans and Democrats, about uh, the way China had, uh, if you want, tilted the international trading relationship by subsidies to state-owned enterprises, by coercive intellectual property transfer, by theft of intellectual property. Uh, this left a very bad taste um, in, uh, as I said, in both political parties, but it also weakened uh, support for China among the American business community, which had been the uh, part of the political system which had been most supportive of China in the Congress. And uh, so even before Trump was elected, uh, there was a, a difficulty uh, 
I've sometimes said uh, that uh, it was like a small fire was burning before the 2016 election and Trump was elected and he became a man who threw gasoline on the fire. But the fire was already there before Trump. When I spoke to President Carter a couple of weeks ago, um, he talked about the US-Japanese relationship and how there was also uh, not only some resentment, which was from the recent historical past, but also how the Americans had felt that uh, Japan had tilted the trade relationship more to its own favor. He then used his own example of setting up what was then, I think, a three-man panel, three men from Japan, three men from the United States. And he offered this as a potential model for today men and women, of course, uh, anonymous, trusted, uh, never will be known or identified so they can work uh, effectively and report to their presidents who can then work together. Does that work in uh, in the ways and, and, and with the opportunities and resources that we have now with these two well, it, leaders? It's possible that you might have a... Um some benefits from a, uh, a wise person's uh, group, is whatever they might call that. Um, but it, 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 President Trump is a very idiosyncratic uh, uh, president or individual. He, he's unlike previous presidents, and sometimes he doesn't even listen to the advice of his own closest advisors. Uh, he's been known to tweet uh, something just the opposite of what uh, his Secretary of State has said. Um, So it's not clear in the case with uh, President Trump that the recommendations of a group of uh, uh, respected uh, seniors would uh, uh, be able to change the views of the President. Um, I mean, I'm not against such an idea, but I wouldn't hold it uh, as having a very high likelihood of success because of the unique nature of this particular president. You mentioned social media. You yourself are a selective, occasional tweeter. In a recent post, you asked an important question. You asked, can we learn to collaborate and compete at the same time? What does that mean in the US-China context? What does smart competition mean to you? Well, if you look at uh, uh, the U.S.-China relationship, I think uh, rather than seeing it as a new Cold War, we should see it as what I've called a cooperative rivalry. There are going to be elements of rivalry. Uh, take, for example, issues like the South China Sea. Uh, and, but there are going to be areas of cooperation. Take areas like climate change. And uh, we have to learn to realize that the relationship is going to be complex but if we lose sight of uh, the cooperative part of the relationship, we're all going to be the worse off for it. Um, climate change is a very major issue, even though President Trump doesn't uh, uh, pay attention to or doesn't accept it. But I think you're going to find that by the next American president, uh, whether that's in 2020 or, or 2024, Uh, Public opinion is moving in a direction of taking climate change seriously and we'll also see uh, damages done by climate change. And I think uh, when people realize that we have to do something, they realize that you can't do it unless the U.S. and China is the two largest powers in production of of greenhouse gases uh, cooperate. 
So I think that uh, the important point is to is to educate the public to the fact that yes, we'll have areas of rivalry and competition, but we'll also have areas where neither of us can accomplish what we want without cooperation. When we look at the other areas where you see potential overlaps, ironically, perhaps not trade in the current settings, you've talked about climate change. What about innovation, global governance, security? What's the cleanest slate they could work off together? Well, I think, uh, uh, for example, governance in the area of uh, cyber uh, relations uh, are going to be important. It's interesting that Xi Jinping and Obama had uh, uh, begun to make progress in this with their meeting at, uh, in 2015. Uh, now it's uh, it seems to have fallen by the wayside, but at some stage we're going to have to get rules of the road for cyber. Um, so there's an area of global governance where I think we're going to have to th- not agree completely because we have different views, but find rules of the road that we can cooperate together. But I think there are other areas as well. Uh, International financial stability, I think it it requires a degree of cooperation between our countries. Uh, Issues that may uh, be dormant now but could become uh, very important in the future are global pandemics and uh, their uh, cooperation in in global health and dealing with pandemics. These are not things which either of us can solve by ourselves. You've talked about the unipolar moment that America has enjoyed, particularly since the end of the Cold War. Ironically, I may often feel that smart competition, if it's done respectfully on both sides, could help extend the US unipolar moment. Am I being too much of an optimist? Well, no, I think the unipolar moment is is over in the sense that uh, uh, that period in the uh, 90s and early 2000s uh, when the uh, after the Soviet Union had collapsed um, is not going to return. Um, I think the Americans are still likely to remain the uh, strongest power in the world. I, I don't uh, think that uh, China or anybody else is about to surpass the Americans in power, but they're uh, going to be a lot closer than they were in the past. And uh, in addition to that, there's a greater diffusion of power among not only more states, but also non-state actors. Sometimes people call this multipolarity. It's really much more complex than that. Uh, The U.S. could remain the dominant power in, let's say, military power. There's no other country able to project military power globally like the Americans can. But uh, in economic power, uh, the world is multipolar, and in areas of transnational relations, uh, uh, there are many more actors. It doesn't make sense to call it unipolar or multipolar. Uh, It's a a polycentrism, if you want. So I think think we're not likely to see the return of unipolarity. I think that was a a, a brief moment. Is that so bad then if not only China, which you say isn't about to overtake America anytime soon, nor indeed any other country, uh, would it be such a bad thing for there to be a greater sense of a shared space, even if countries were coming closer to one another? Well, I think the United States has got to uh, adjust its foreign policy attitudes to realize 
that uh, we can't think just of power over other countries, we have to think of power with other countries. That many of the things that we want to accomplish can only be done with others, not uh, just by uh, trying to have power over others. So I think uh, President Trump's attitudes of uh, uh, America first are the wrong way for American attitudes to develop. Uh, every country puts its own interests first, that uh, leaders are elected to, to uh, represent their country's interests. But there's a big difference between America first or China first, meaning uh, short-term self-interest and meaning an enlightened long-term self-interest which respects the interests of others. And I think uh, uh, a, a post-Trump president uh, is going to have to move our attitudes in that direction. May we talk also about the larger Asia in its engagement with America? You regularly visit the region. I think you were recently in Beijing and also yes. in Tokyo. And you noted what you expressed as a Chinese concern that a Cold War that Jimmy Carter also warned of at the turn of this year is in the offing. But you say that unlike the US-Soviet example, the US-China dynamic is very different at a very different time as well. Is that going to be enough to protect the world and protect humanity? Because surely it's got to be more than just about trade numbers. It has to be about people on our planet. Well, I think that's correct. And, I, I, and in that sense, the reason I don't think there's going to be another Cold War is uh, if you look back on the U.S.-Soviet Cold War, there was almost no trade and there was almost no contact among peoples. And whereas if you look at the U.S. and China today, uh, not only is there massive trade, uh, which is partly a source of uh, contention, but uh, there are massive exchanges of people. I mean, uh, I think something, uh, you know, uh, the number of Chinese students in, in the United States, uh, it's, I read, saw some numbers around 375,000 or something. Uh, Chinese tourists in the United States are in the millions. Uh, and uh, American tourists in China, similarly, uh, these are good things. I mean, the, the, that entanglement, the social entanglement of the countries, uh, it makes it more difficult to isolate and, uh, and demonize the other country and uh, set some limits on the amount of uh, conflict that grows out of the rivalry. In, in terms of the collaboration and the competition that we've already spoken of earlier in this conversation. I've been trying to listen hard to what American thinkers are saying, and some of them have expressed it as an approach that in their mind sees America reserving the right to respond to Chinese abuses while working with it as and when it chooses to as well. But rather than ask you about the American approach, what would you say the Chinese approach should be? Well, I think uh, one thing is China has to be aware, or Chinese leaders have to be aware of what I call a two-audience problem. Uh, if you say that China will be first in artificial intelligence in 2030, as Xi Jinping has said, uh, that may play very well in Chinese politics, plays terribly in Washington. It means China is going to defeat the U.S., by 2030. So what sounds good in Beijing sounds terrible in Washington. 
find a way to express that uh, which doesn't make it a direct challenge that focuses more on the cooperative sum aspects rather than the zero sum aspects. And that goes then for the way in which China sets its program of developing uh, technologies which will be important for China and nobody can prevent or should prevent China from developing them. But uh, uh, if you use coercive intellectual property transfer, if you use uh, intellectual property theft, uh, if you give special uh, uh, subsidies to state-owned enterprises, if you don't have reciprocity so that Alibaba can list in Washington but Google can't play in China, these uh, give rise to resentment. And so if, if China wants to find a modus vivendi with the U.S., it has to be aware of how its policies and its statements are playing in America. So on the one hand, you're saying it's a question of communication, of branding, of expression, but also at the same time that it has to be backed up by the meat. Exactly. I mentioned to a friend today that I was coming to meet with you and that I was hoping to speak to you about some of the subjects that you have written so widely about for China-US Focus, for the Financial Times and elsewhere. And she said to me, it's funny how collaboration and competition are antidotes to me. The alternative, though, of course, I think, uh, Professor Nye, is a, is a possible red scare that we have seen not so long ago. What do you think will be the prevailing opinion? Do you think people will wake up to a certain approach, or will it be the approach as they are familiar with at current? Well, I suspect that we're going to go through um, several years of this uh, uh uh, suspicion, in other words, I, 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 and l lack of trust in the relationship. It's unfortunate, but uh, it's going to be changes in policies in both countries. In China, the types of changes I just mentioned in the U.S., I don't think much is going to change until the next president. We don't know whether that'll be 2020 or 2024. But um, I think that uh, in the long run, uh, the U.S. and China do not present existential threats to each other. Neither of us is trying to destroy the other. And uh, that means that the rivalry is something we can manage. It doesn't lead to the kinds of fears that we had in the 1930s about Hitler uh, and Hitler's Nazism or the fears we had in the 1950s about Stalin and Stalin's communism. Uh, so, you know, whatever one thinks about uh, uh, the differences in our two social systems, and they are different, uh, it's quite possible for us to uh, have rules of the road that let us uh, live and let live and to also to cooperate. But right now, the domestic attitudes in both countries are not very healthy for this. If I may, I would like to finish off with a look in at the world in all its glorious nuances. The world is, of course, much wider and deeper than just America and China and the relationship that they share. So being the global leader that you are, if you were to project and anticipate, what would you tell us is the major trend or an important trend to come? And how should we prepare ourselves for it in advance? Well, I do think that there are going to be um, common transnational challenges and they're ones that no one country can solve by itself. 
So if we don't learn how to uh, cooperate, we're not going to be able to achieve our own objectives. Uh, climate change is, I think, a, a classic example of this in the sense that I think it's going to get a lot worse uh, and that we're going to have to cooperate to be able to deal with it at all. But many of the other issues I mentioned, whether it be transnational terrorism or whether it be cyber relations or whether it be global pandemics, uh, these are issues where uh, nobody is going to be able to accomplish it by themselves. And so we're going to have to develop these networks of cooperation if we're going to govern and manage these types of processes. And uh, I think that uh, it means that we're condemned to uh, cooperate because if we don't, we're really just condemned. Well, we're into the first days of spring, so let's hope that this brings with it a renewed beginning. Professor Nye, thank you very much for having me here at Harvard. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have a chat.